Hi everyone, this is Read Watch Play. I'm Cleo. I'm Corinne. I'm Justin. And I'm James. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about The Bloody Chamber by Angela Carter, which can be basically summarized as, well, that's the thing, I want to be careful about this, because Angela Carter, who I believe uh, passed away, was very specific about how she liked this book to be described, like someone had once described it as adult fairy tales, and she was not a fan of that. I, I'm not sure whether that's because of the erotic implication of calling something adult uh but they're kind of updated fairy tales that take place in a relatively modern era uh mostly around like the 30s and earlier I would, i'd say uh but they have a bit of a what for at least what the time was like a feminist twist on them uh and she's like a very poetic writer so it's stories like bluebeard little red riding hood sleeping beauty weird variant of not snow white but the snow child i guess and then beauty and the beast there's a couple of, couple of different adaptations of that uh so i'm i've read this before back in high school it was required reading well damn interesting it was probably the most scandalous thing i had ever read up to that point in my life so i was very like <laughs> surprised uh so i'm really curious to hear what you guys thought of it uh i liked it i thought that the modern i guess twists or setting or whatever was uh was interesting and i really i really liked carter's um style of writing uh i guess her her word choices were extremely powerful and i think that the first story, The Bloody Chamber, is the one I think that has the most to benefit from the way that she would describe things and uh, the way she her characters would, like, ruminate on things. So I thought it was really cool. Yeah, I, I liked it a lot as well. I think, Cleo, your, your choice to say that she's a very poetic writer is, um, I think, the best description I could really give of it. It's... It's interesting because I feel like her writing style does something really interesting with the fact that usually when you read like old fairy tales, they're usually very straightforwardly written. It's a lot of like this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and then, you know, the witch was in the oven. Um, and I think that Carter does something really interesting where she's simultaneously very poetic, but also very straightforward. It's... It's not that the characters don't have, like, uh, an inner monologue. It's that she expresses it in a way that still makes it feel like that same... You have this sort of almost omniscient narrator who is telling you the story, but it's being told in such a way that you do get a lot more personality from the characters themselves. I... I think it's something that, and we can talk about more of this in the topic episode, but I think it is something about a fairy tale that ends up being missing from some of the other things that we've, uh, that we watched and played is really that kind of cadence and storytelling of it. And I think she does a really good job of not only updating the stories themselves, but updating kind of the way that they're told to make it just more engaging, more impactful. It makes it feel much more like 
it, it, you feel how weird and creepy some of these base stories are much more than you would when it was just like, I don't know. I always think of something like Little Red Riding Hood, right? The notion of a wolf like eating her grandmother, it feels like it's usually presented as such a matter of fact thing. And you just kind of roll with the punches and you're like, okay, grandmother's eaten. Got it. Moving forward. But whereas this, you, it, it feels much more dark. It feels much more sinister in the ways that sort of in hindsight you realize it maybe should have in the first place. Yeah. I mean, kind of agreed on, on all counts, especially when it comes to talking about her language, it's, it's some of the, the best sort of like poetic prose that I've read. And it was great. A lot of times there were, there were, and this is my own fault more than anything else, but there were definitely times where it, it resulted in me tuning out a little bit as I, as I would, read through certain paragraphs but the the thing that i thought about these stories that was so interesting and valuable was that we got a sort of like a sort of inner at least in the longer stories we got like this inner monologue we got a real idea of like what the protagonists were thinking i mean several of them at least the bloody chamber and i thought more are told from the perspective like of the protagonist, either after the fact or as it's happening, and it sort of adds this, um, this sort of like their thought process too, which is not something that we see in in the traditional fairy tales. It's it's like you said, James. It's it's very thing happens, thing happens, thing happens, and they might talk a little bit about what they're worried about, and then that's it. And in this, it's like sort of a constant idea of how the character feels, which I think added a lot to these stories. I think the style could also be described as um, somewhat timeless, which I think happens fairly frequently when you have a talented writer who is kind of trying to write in the style of a past era. Uh, and I feel like she doesn't specifically try to be like, okay, this is the language of 1910, but she does kind of adapt that fairy tale that the old like fairy tale language that a lot of even other modern authors try to use i re it's interesting going back to read this now as an adult because as uh, what i was in like 10th grade i want to say the language was i mean the vocabulary itself there were definitely words where i was just like what the hell does this mean but now, being a more advanced reader, obviously, it's much smoother reading. I also definitely remember there being, like, a lot of people in the class who were just like, what the fuck is this? Like, what Because it, 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 it's... The, the Bloody Chamber, without giving away too much, does touch on, like, the subject of uh, pornography. And there are some, throughout the entire book, some, like, very like sexual descriptions of things um not always about sex itself um but that's definitely kind of a theme that's present throughout pretty much every single story now that i think about it so it it's also weird to think that like the things that really really scandalized me back then now i i went back to this in anticipation of it being like really really out there um but of course, as like a 27-year-old, your reaction is different than when you were like, what, 15? <laughs> so I was like, oh, that that's it? That was... Because I remember this, specifically this one passage from... Which we'll go into from 
the title story, The Bloody Chamber, where I was like, man, when I read this when I was 15, this was really, really intense for me. And I was definitely like blushing while I was reading it and being like, oh my god, how are we going to talk about this in class? <laughs> but um, yeah, <laughs> and this time it just kind of, it came up, I read through it and I was like, oh, that's not nearly <laughs> as like drawn out as I thought it was initially. I remember that I think that there I think the word nipples is used to describe man nipples more than woman nipples in this entire book, which I was quite pleased about. <laughs> <laughs> there is no need to follow up follow that up with anything. Nope. You can't so the end. Moving on. Well, one thing that I that I thought um that we could talk about when I was reading sort of other stuff about this book, um, like doing research, checking dates and time periods and seeing stuff that Carter had said and, and that kind of stuff. Um, it interested me that it's, it is so frequent. It's one of those instances of like the removal of uh, like authorial intent. Carter was like, whenever somebody would mention these stories as being like particularly feminist she always kind of balked at that idea and kind of outright denied it. But it's the only way that anybody, like it's one of the primary ways that people seem to talk about these stories and having read them, it's, I, it's hard for me to see it otherwise. I mean, they're just written from the perspective of the female character and they are aware of and thinking about and in many cases embracing their sexuality. And I would say that exploring that and and having them from the viewpoints that she has them from and the modernization of the setting and like the language style are the the major like points that sort of bring everything all of these stories like together thematically. I mean, I think a, one common theme is definitely. A, the female protagonist will kind of lose her power early on. Um, she'll be basically at the whims of one or more male characters. And then later on, she'll kind of claim her power again, or, or like, in well, yeah, or other female characters jump in. I can think of one story where, like, that doesn't happen in this at all. Um, but generally... It's kind of, like, at least in one of the Alice, not Alice in Wonderland, what am I talking about? Um, blah, 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 blah. Little Red Riding Hood, although Alice in Wonderland did, did kind of, there was a reference to that in one of these stories, and now I can't remember which one. Um, but, yeah, in one of the Little Red Riding Hood adaptations, it's kind of, is is an interesting take on <laughs> what it means for uh, Little Red Riding Hood to have power in that case and to be the one who's in control um there's definitely some weird reactions that are a little bit surreal like the way that she reacts to her and this is not a spoiler because everybody knows little red riding hood but like the way that this character reacts to uh her grandmother being killed it's interesting. It's definitely it's it still retains that weird surreal logic of fairy tales. <laughs> I, I thought that ending was particularly good. I don't know that it was my favorite story, but I did I did enjoy the, the ending to that one. Yeah. I did not enjoy, I will say, I did not enjoy the fact that Red Riding Hood in that story was like 12. Yeah. <laughs> I could, 
I think like I, I think I could do without adult writers exploring the themes of pubescent sexuality. Yeah. I mean I not to say that it doesn't happen, but I don't necessarily want to read it. The story was interesting and I think it has its merits, but I was I could not forget that the the character was supposed to be twelve during Oh, I'm thinking of a different one. I'm thinking of the werewolf. Ah. Ah, yeah. That was that was also the one that I wasn't sure if that was the one we were talking about. Because um, the ending of that one I also love. There was a film adaptation of... Uh, which one? It was In the Company of Wolves. Yeah. Uh, and it was weird because I saw it come on TV again back in high school. And I was like, huh, this seems vaguely familiar and then i looked at the title of the movie and it was in the company of wolves but honestly it wasn't it it wasn't super faithful to the text i think it would be kind of hard to be because that story is particularly a little bit all over the place at least in the beginning but it's a very i think it was made in the 80s this book was also i forgot to mention this but this book was published in um 1979 originally and i think that movie was either late 80s or early 90s and it's very much stylized like from what i recall kind of like labyrinth and uh legend that kind of glittery fairy tale aesthetic uh okay so one quick question with regards to the book's publishing date i looking at the copyright page i am also seeing the late 70s but the cover of my copy says 75th anniversary is there anything in this that is so i i looked at this too because i saw 75th anniversary and i was like wow this book is way older than i thought it was and I and I checked into it. It's not. It's it's anniversary is like the worst word to use. But I feel like calling it seventy fifth birthday edition wouldn't really work so well. It is the seven. It was released on the seventy fifth anniversary year of Angela Carter's birth. Ah, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> That's very confusing. Yeah it it reminds me a little bit of I don't know, anything else when it's just like oh I. It's, it's, this year is the anniversary of this. Like, well, every year is the anniversary of that. Those happen every year. That's how it works. But, okay, that, that makes more sense. Okay. There was a game a little while ago that had, like, an anniversary edition, but it was, like, the third anniversary. It's just some arbitrary <laughs> year, and they just, it was, it was, like, every year is the anniversary of that game coming out. It's just, it was weird. Anyway. So, as we are about 15 minutes in, and we're already starting to talk about the endings of stories, do we want to... Uh, draw our spoiler line here. Yeah, I mean, for a short story collection, if we don't want to spoil any individual story, it's kind of hard. We can talk about the first half of every story separately, then we'll go back and run through everything again. Um, Okay, so uh, our next series is going to be Meddling Kids. Uh, During this, we are going to be reading Meddling Kids by Edmund Cantero. We are going to be watching Stranger Things Season 2, again by the Duffer Brothers. We are going to be playing Oxenfree by Night School Games. Uh, But if you uh, are just joining us with this series, then I will also remind you that while that is our next full series, that's going to be starting a little bit later. And in between this series and that, we are going to be taking a brief interlude where we're going to have some some festive content, let's say, from... uh, well, I, I won't spoil that, but some festive content coming in in, in the middle uh, to, to get us through the holidays where we're all going to be 
off with family and won't be able to record normally. So uh, keep your eyes out for that. And then we'll be back with meddling kids. I'd say probably kind of mid January is around what we were thinking. Mid January, maybe, maybe late January. Yeah. So with that uh, next episode will be our topic episode for all of uh, fairy tales 2.0. Because, uh, again, if you are coming back to this in the future, we recorded these out of order so we could make sure Cleo was here for the Bloody Chamber and Topic episodes. So this is the last individual episode of this series. Um, and with that, we are into spoilers for the Bloody Chamber. So uh, the ending that I was talking about was just the one where Red Riding Hood uh, convinces everyone that her grandmother is a witch and steals her house and prospers. I, it, it's not my favorite story because there's not a whole lot going on, but I did think it was very funny that it ends with just, and now she lives there and she prospered. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, it, I agree on the probably not my favorite story count, but it is definitely, I think, my favorite ending. So I guess speaking of that, I feel like it's not the most interesting thing to talk about, but I am kind of curious if, uh, just at least as a starting point for other stuff we want to get into, did, did people have stories they particularly liked? I don't know that it is the most insightful story, but I had a really good time with Puss in Boots. <laughs> yeah, Puss in Boots was fun. It's weird because it's a little long, but it, I feel like I think of it as like a palate cleanser uh, coming off of... I mean, it, Bloody Chamber moves into the courtship of Mr. Lion and the Tiger's Bride, which is kind of nice because you get away from it. Bloody Chamber is pretty dark and intense, so it's nice to get to a few things that are a little bit more warm or it, not upbeat, but... I don't know, a little bit less dark overall, I feel like. But Puss in Boots is a nice a nice break in the middle of all of that to just start getting to a story where Carter applies her like I again as we talked about, like, I think her like really nice writing style to various ways of a cat describing how he's licking himself. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> Sorry. I just remembering my state of mind reading this in high school i was really unprepared to read something in which a cat like talks about sexuality (laughs) and the second time reading it i was surprised with how okay i was with it like it seemed much more normal to me and that probably has a lot to do with what i've read since that time (laughs) and the kind of media we all consume but at the time my attitude was very much like what the fuck this is a cat talking about like sex and actually my attitude about it was a lot better than some of my classmates who were really 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 uncomfortable with the subject matter but i think my personal favorite is probably still after all these years the bloody chamber um I, this story turned me on to the fairy tale of Bluebeard, and I've done several adaptation projects of that fairy tale since. Um, this also very much reminds me, and I have to wonder whether um, Guillermo del Toro might have read this version, because it reminded me of Crimson Peak, which is very yeah. Bluebeard-inspired. Yeah. I was actually just thinking about that, that like we could do an entire... Bluebeard's Bride, like, uh, topic episode if we did uh, The Bloody Chamber, Crimson Peak, and then played Bluebeard's Bride, the RPG, which I honestly never want to play because it's terrifying. Sounds harrowing. But yeah, like, it could be a topic unto itself. Mm -hmm. I have to agree with you uh, about 
uh, the Bloody Chamber. I think that was also probably my favorite story from from the bunch. Maybe it's, I mean, I don't think it's because it was the first one I read, but I, I think that, like I said, I think the, the, the language in the first story was, was like, strongest there. Just the, the descriptions of Bluebeard leading up to the, the, the turn when, you know, she consciously realizes that he is a threat, I guess. But, like, the, the fact that she knew all along with the way that she would describe him was very, was very interesting and very unsettling. Like, as I was reading it, I was actively like, I don't like this, but, like, I know it's because I'm being made to not like it because of how things are being described. So, so you know, props to Angela Carter for making something compelling and also very unlikable. Yeah, the thing about... So one thing that came up this time, specifically, which I hadn't had... It had not occurred to me before, was that the depiction of both the protagonist and Bluebeard, or, you know, his... 1935 or whatever version of himself it it was very labyrinthy to me like the way that labyrinth is supposed to be perceived so you have the female protagonist who is innocent but kind of learning about the adult world and coming into her own and learning that like hey puberty like i'm a sexual person i am attracted to people this is kind of weird and i'm attracted to older guys um and then you have this older man who kind of delights in that potential for corruption and that innocence um and that's n- not really a sexy thing that's like a scary thing yeah and <laughs> spoilers for labyrinth like some people that ending i i i ethically agree with the fan fiction community seems not to and they do all these things that are in my mind kind of ethically questionable (laughs) um i mean people can write whatever they want but like had that been the course of the actual story uh it would have taken issue but this does what i like as well which is kind of exploring the fact that you can be somewhat excited by and attracted to things you know you probably shouldn't because it's i mean we're talking about a predator um but then also kind of seeing that in yourself and realizing who this person really is and that they're dangerous um and i find that arc very powerful yeah i i really liked the cases where there was a questionably inappropriate relationship between the protagonist and the the male interest or I guess the protagonist and the female interest in some cases um and the the story made sure you understood that it was problematic mm-hmm. this is a, a a minor detail but one of the things that I thought was particularly interesting is that at I mean these are not necessarily connected stories so you can't really say in all of them but the, the bloody chamber like takes place realistically and effectively like in our world like it takes place in a world where the the legend of bluebeard exists because she specifically references bluebeard near the end of the story as she's like telling the story and i thought that was just like a really interesting concept like a world where a fairy tale story is happening where those fairy tales are like known legends 
Like how in zombie movies, nobody will say the word zombie. Yeah. But the opposite. Oh, also, the bloody chamber. I fucking loved how, at the end, her her mother came just riding, galloping down the causeway on a horse to, to shoot him in the head. That was great. I, I was alone in the house at the time, so I, I, I could and did yell, fuck him up, bitch. <laughs> I really wish I'd gotten home earlier. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. I was really into that. Yeah. That's that's actually the part I was going to mention as well as that as my favorite part of the story. I it's I really like that that story overall feels very well crafted. There's a lot of things that get laid out as foreshadowing for later in a way that doesn't feel like heavy-handed foreshadowing and it's it's silly because i feel like everything that i'm saying here is just like yeah she's a competent author but like she actually genuinely does a really good job of it and unfortunately it's something that i don't think you see as often as part of me imagines that you do i guess but so it is really nice when you do get a story like that where it's just like every every line feels like it matters like it's it's interesting to read as you're going through it and you're thinking about the lines and you're enjoying the language. That information that you're getting is never – it never goes to waste. It often feels like it's doing double duty because it gives you this sense of why the protagonist and her mother are living in the situation that they are. But then also that notion of – I don't know. It, the mother's kind of adventurous past sort of comes in again at the end and everything feels good and right and it never feels like she's setting up for the ending when she is. But – it was very much the kind of thing where it made me wish that uh, a few of the other stories in this were a bit longer. I, as much as I enjoyed you know, the stories at the end and the Red Riding Hood stuff, it the first four stories in this, I would say the first half of the stories take up about two-thirds of the book, and uh, Bloody Chamber itself is a third of the book just alone. And it was the kind of thing where it, I don't know, it really felt like with that extra length, there was a certain amount of like extra room to like breathe and move that I I really enjoyed. And I kind of wish, I don't know, I, that I sort of wish Carter had almost given herself in some of the other stories. I, I don't know, it's hard to say, but I I really liked the way that one felt altogether. On top of Grin, like you said, just the fact that the mom riding up on the end and shooting the guy yeah. through the gate it's was fucking awesome. There's, also, there's like no hesitation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, not even, like, there's, the the story as it's being told is, like, one of those moments where it enters slow motion, and, like, she's telling all of these things all at once, but realistically, it's, like, yeah, like, just, he's toast. Yeah. And it's kind of amazing. So, two things. One, James, the thing that you're, you were describing where you, you, you liked how every, every word and sentence felt like it had a purpose, um. I had a writing professor in college who would call that economy of language. And I really like that phrase to describe the thing that you're talking about. Which is interesting because I think that economy of language is something that usually describes the best poetry. But I think often when I hear prose described as poetic, that often means that it has extremely poor economy of language. And people usually use that to mean that it's very like flowery and nice to read but i genuinely think that in this case the prose is poetic in the sense that it is genuinely like poetry which is to say does a lot with a little by being very specific in the words that are chosen 
I think it really is. It's something that I feel like as I was reading, I thought about a little bit, but now as we're like coming back and like going back to it and thinking about it. And I think even just like having a little bit of space from the actual reading, it's sort of being like more and more clear that this really is one of the areas that I think this, these stories shine. Yeah. Um, thing number two, uh, besides just the sheer badassery of her mother riding in on a horse and shooting the guy in the head, which again, rad as hell. I, I think that it was a really, I, I don't know, I guess, uh, kind of like a, like a, like a female solidarity kind of moment where, I mean, yes, this was her mother, but like she was taken away from the, the company of women and taken into sort of the company of men and, Things were dangerous because the man who brought her there was a predator and a bad person. And she was saved through crying and talking about her problems and the love between her and her mother. Like, those are the things that, that saved her. And I thought that was I thought that was very interesting and cool and not something that you see all that often. And I think one thing that I particularly liked about this version of that kind of story was that, well, I agree with that notion of she goes from kind of the company of women to the company of men and that the latter is more dangerous. While she is in the castle, you still have the housekeeper who is also dangerous and is kind of affiliated with her husband, but who is a woman. And you have kind of the uh, the piano tuner who is helpful and ultimately not able to change anything, but is still empathetic towards her and like is well-meaning and is ultimately someone with whom she builds a relationship, etc. And I think that, again, it's a tribute to the... It, I think it's one of the things that makes it clear that it is strongly written, that I, I think that, Corinne, your reading is exactly right, but it manages to get that feeling very firmly across without, I don't know, without just, like, saying strictly, like, oh, like, it used to be that every character she knew was female, and now every character that she interacts with is male, and making it like very almost sort of bang you over the head with it or very I don't know, very blunt but that it is instead nuanced i i think is nice well at the same time i don't think that you could argue at all that that's not what's happening here you know are, are there other things that we want to say about the bloody chamber because i i feel like we could this type of books that really could have been entirely about that one story honestly but... it could have but like i i don't necessarily know if we want to like I don't know if we want to go story by story and talk about each one, but I think the Bloody Chamber merits having its own sort of mini discussion inside of this episode. Yeah, for sure. I would like to talk a little bit about the two stories that immediately follow the Bloody Chamber, the two Beauty and the Beast interpretations, because uh, I thought that it was really interesting that she did two of those and the ways that they are different. And I think the thing that I like most about them, the fact that each of them does seem to get at different things and that you have this notion of one story being able to be kind of spun in two different directions that I thought was interesting. I will say while I was reading them, I think I like the story about Mr. Lion. I liked it more as I was reading it. I think that the the story about Mr. Tiger is a little bit frustrating because throughout the entire thing, it feels like there's intended to be this mystery of like, oh, why does he wear a mask all the time? What's up with this guy? Whereas, you, I mean, oh my God, you know. And it takes like half to three quarters of the story. And it's not that the story is long, but during all of that, it's just like, I wonder why he wears a mask. It's like, he's a tiger. He's Haven't you read the title of your own story? 
yeah. And I understand that the character doesn't know that, but I, as the reader who A, has read the title, B, is familiar with Beauty and the Beast, C, just read a story about Mr. Lion, like, I, I figured that one out pretty quick. Um, but I've got to say, long term, I really liked that the Mr. Tiger story ended up feeling like it was about just, like, I don't know, like, it the like the part of a relationship that is, like, kind of letting down your guard, your facade, and kind of, like, letting this other person like see you as you actually are and how hard that can be to do. And it, I think it takes an interesting route to get there, but I, I don't know. I thought it did a a good job with that. I thought it was an interesting take on that notion of beauty and the beast and like loving someone for who they are on the inside as opposed to on the outside. But I don't know. It was, I I really liked that. I thought that was a very, clever set of connections that in hindsight feels so obvious that I I think like so many of the best insights into a story isn't, you know? Yeah. Normally I take issue with stories where like a, a female character will change herself to become like her love interest. And so that was I when I was looking back on this before I started rereading that particular story again. Um, that was the only thing I really remembered. And I was like, oh, I might not like this one as much. But when you, and what the story is really about is kind of showing who you really are, not being afraid to kind of take down those walls and be as you are, even if it's potentially repugnant to the rest of the world. Um, And when you kind of see it, if you frame it as both of them kind of, embracing self-acceptance rather than like i'm gonna change to be like you so you'll accept me and love me too um it's definitely a much more powerful story i think there's also a part of it that is um removing the thing that you had to be for somebody else uh like because because of the way her her father is brought in like to to sort of like well i i mean i as a mirror into like like her her old life or or who she is now or who she's trying to be now for him it's the act of rejecting him and i guess what he sees her as and what she has to be in order to be his daughter that allows her to become the tiger mm-hmm. so yeah i think it's also i think it's also in part about putting aside who you were before for a fa- like your family or I could even be somebody else entirely. But I also liked that uh, there was like very clearly a desire on the tiger's part to show her who he was um, and that it wasn't it, – that it seemed like that was at least to some degree sort of his goal all along was that he was looking for someone where he didn't have to wear his like ridiculous, obviously false like human suit. I don't know, and that that ended up being a a part of the story as well. Again, I don't think it's necessarily the the primary one, but I did I did like that that was an aspect to it. You know, if we're comfortable, kind of moving way ahead in the book, skipping a few stories to uh, I <laughs> I'm very curious to hear what you all thought of the shortest story, the Snow Child, because it's very it, in the length. It is more like a traditional fairy tale um it's also very stark and i'm not a hundred percent i've never been a hundred percent sure what the hmm, for lack of better 
terminology the moral of the story is yeah i would i would agree with that um i'm not necessarily sure what what it is ultimately about uh, or rather even like what i think it is ultimately about i think it's something that i could probably get to if i sat with it for a bit uh because i don't think that it is just arbitrary but i've got to say i in the same way that i think that uh carter's storytelling i thought was really sort of at its best when she had a bit more room to breathe i think that she also does a very good job with this where it's very very short i mean it's it's about a page long altogether i mean it's it's two pages in the book but with the chapter heading space omitted i think that this is the other place where it really shines where it does feel like you get sort of a the whole thing over very little space uh, I think ultimately, I I think that those two sort of extremes work a little bit better than most of like the twenty-page stories, etc., or even like some of like the ten-page stories, sort of towards the back. But I I thought it was interesting. I will certainly say it's one of the ones that really like stuck with me. I think because I didn't feel like I understood what was going on, just coming out of it. Yeah, I I didn't necessarily like it. I guess. I mean, I, I thought that. I thought it was, there were parts that were interesting and fanciful and fanciful in the, the, the magic clothes transportation, not, not, uh, the other stuff, but, uh, I don't know. I, I feel like I didn't really come away feeling a whole lot about that story, but just kind of being like, well, I certainly just read that. <laughs> certainly is a thing I've read. I mean, I think it touches on, like, the same kind of stuff that that the Bloody Chamber is getting to about, like, male power and about, like, male, like, ideas and, and, and like, the way that men view femininity in women. Like, it's, like, he he's, he's given this power and he can, like, he's given this power to create effectively and he creates, like, a sexualized ideal and... She's kind of getting at the the darkest sides of what men might sexualize, which is why she comes out as like a twelve year old, twelve or thirteen year old, like the child that's that's fully grown once once all said and done is like younger, like like right? If I, am I remembering right? Uh, she's described as a child of his desire, and the countess refers to her continuously as a girl, so. I don't know what that's supposed to mean from an age perspective. Right, it's, I, I guess it's hard to get at something specific. I, I I think that's an interesting reading. I I don't know, maybe I wasn't reading very closely, but I interpreted the line, child of his desire, as literally his child. Like, that she came from his, like, sexual encounters with his wife. Well, I, I think it's supposed to, to mean both. Not that he desires to have a child that he would want to be sexual with but he desires his child to be this like like he only wants her to be beautiful right i think that's said specifically and like he he wants to create this perfect ideal and i mean in the end he still tries does have sex with her oh yeah yeah like after she after she dies. yes that's true that does happen but that's that's part of it it's like she's she's literally an object right he creates this like idea of what he he thinks is the perfect woman or the most beautiful woman and then even once she's dead she's still the same beautiful object to him and she can still serve that purpose before she's no longer needed 
Yeah, I I guess I definitely remembered the story more as more about the uh, his wife trying to kill her. Yeah, I, I, I will admit I can't. I, I didn't think as much on that part of it when I was putting this together. I I would say I, I you're you're not wrong, right? Like everything that I think that everything that you've said is like supported by the text. Those just aren't the parts that like stood out to me after I read it. But I think that it's realistically it's probably a combination of the two. Maybe it's the fear of your role in somebody's life being displaced by having a child. I said that in a joking voice, but but then also it's. I, I mean, I think a that's a realistic depiction of, like, what, <laughs> at least what part of her actions and ideas are supposed to represent. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the thing, is, like, that's, that was, that was more my initial reading. But I think that Justin's right, though, in that the fact that the, the Count then, like, has sex with, like, the snow oh, that no, she melted no. into. She like, melts after. She melts after. He has sex with oh, the she is, Oh, yeah. She is a fully formed girl thing at the time that he copulates with her corpse. So let's talk about, I because we only talked about it briefly before, and I feel like it's a nice note to end on, and it's the one I've been keeping in my pocket. Let's talk about Puss in Boots a little bit, but then we'll, and then we we'll talk put about that, on this. I just want to say, the entire time I was reading the story, because we watched Shrek and Shrek 2 in this, <laughs> I could only picture the Puss in Boots of the story as Antonio Banderas' Puss in Boots from Shrek. And Honestly, what a gift. Honestly, I think the text supports that reading. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I feel like it for all of the stories that I think do get into kind of the darker sides of, you know, whether it's coming of age or dealing with family or finding yourself in a relationship or anything like that, um, I I do think it was nice to have one story that was, I'm going to say, 80% hijinks. Yeah, I mean, like, they still kill a man and steal his fortune. But, <laughs> but in a fun way. It's like a heist. It is. And, like, it's a heist for true love. And I think that they do, like, it, it really... I, I, I say they as though this was, like, you know, made by a team of people. I think specifically Angela Carter does a really good job with even just, like, making... Like, the, the love interest in the story, right? She is a little bit kind of like a damsel in distress like in her tower but on the other hand as soon as like she has any means to communicate she's like on board she's part of the plan she's like doing stuff she's getting stuff done she's killing people she's hiding rats yeah and or rather it specifically those things are the are her cat who again the other love interest in the story is just this other cat and she's super involved like but she's then, the mastermind which might be my favorite part of this yeah and, like, that the two guys who we follow are just kind of, like, these sort of, I don't know, a lot of bravado, but generally just kind of love-struck stooges, even if uh, Puss in Boots won't, like, admit it. But, yeah, no, like, this is this is very much the, the I, I don't remember the, does does the young woman actually get a name? Uh, maybe toward the beginning? We'll get his fake names. Yeah, anyway, but it, I mean, they're very much in control, but... I don't know. I this is just a fun one. I it was I don't know. It was a nice thing to put like right there in the middle of everything. I love all the points where he talks about how good he is at jumping on things. <laughs> the, I thought that long, was good. Long passage about the triple somersault. You know. Yeah. And Angela Carter really managed to capture uh, the inner thought processes of a cat. One would assume. I guess. I'm 
No, I, I agree. My expert opinion on this matter. <laughs> right. I, I don't know how authoritatively I can say. My initials spell cat. Therefore, I can say I agree. Uh, and yeah. it means something. That makes sense. I also enjoyed that it seemed largely left up to your imagination <laughs> how big these boots were. Because I get the imp- like, there were several points where it made it sound like the cat is still walking on all fours, even yeah. while wearing human boots. Um, and none of that makes sense. And I feel like in in the spirit of – in the best spirit of fairy tales, not the spirit of the best fairy tales, but the best spirit of fairy tales, Carter's just like, yep, reconcile that. <laughs> Deal with it. It's like cat in shoes. What do you want from me? And you know what? I yeah. – just I respect the fact that, that. He took them from a person. Unless the person had like tiny feet, I don't know. I there were some points where you also could potentially imagine him wearing them on his front paws as well. Like there were there were some instances where where that imagining of it was plausible. It's a very special. Thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I like the part where uh, where his lady cat tabs. Asked him to take them off before they had sex. <laughs> Those infernal heels. Yeah. <laughs> and that, like, he he'll do it, but he was a little like he he wasn't gonna if she wasn't gonna ask. He was kind of mad about it. Yeah, a little bit. I also I feel like like the best stories. I like that this ends with kittens, <laughs> so that's nice. Fair. It's definitely it's definitely the good story to have in the middle. We take we get the the dark yeah, opening, and then we get the like kind of dark, kind of not super dark, you know, Beauty and the Beast retellings. Then we get this, and then shit goes off the rails for the rest of the book. And I think this was this was like the perfect flow for these like this set of stories. Yeah, all the stories after this are kind of like there's something in the woods that will kill you type stories. <laughs> yeah. Or, or the what's the what's the vampire? Oh, one? that's the Sleeping Beauty the, the lady adaptation. The lady of the House of Love. It's like Sleeping Beauty plus a little bit of Jack and the Beanstalk for mm-hmm. good measure, and like why not vampires? Like that's that's the best way I could summarize that story. And it's just like what? And then World War One. Oh, it makes sense. All right, shall we? Yeah. Shall we wrap it up there? Yeah, I think so. Sounds good. Well, there will be plenty more time to talk about The Bloody Chamber and all of these other stories uh, in our topic episode, which will be coming out in two weeks. And then after that, keep your eye out for our special holiday content. And then after that, we'll be getting into meddling kids. Until then, though, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Read, Watch, Play. If you want to help us out, the best thing you can do is tell your friends about the show. You can also rate and review us on iTunes. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us at RWP Podcast on Twitter and like us at Facebook.com slash RWP Podcast.